1: plus.
2: Recorded live.
3: Hi, everybody. Today's Thursday, May 31st, and this is our community of practice call for the Illinois EI Schools Community Practice, and we're excited to have uh, Nami Shaw on the call to help lead our discussion today. Our, this is one of our special topic calls on early intervention, and so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Nemi, because we got started a bit late as everybody was trying to log in and, and do live things, so we will go ahead and, and get started with our discussion. So, Nemi, take it away.
2: Sure. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so, something that I has been coming up a lot in practice, um, and I haven't quite figured out or mastered this yet, is just um, guiding difficult discussions. Um, that come up with families in early intervention, um, you know, since we are coming into the family's home so early on um, in their child's life, you know, we're often the first providers uh, talking to them about, you know, diagnoses um, and just kind of talking to them about what their child's care is going to look like as they're growing up. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering um, how, what people's experiences have been like and if they have used any strategies that have worked really well, Um, in guiding these discussions with with parents that are in such a vulnerable time in their life and just kind of, you know, navigating um, having a child with a disability. Great. Hello?
3: Yeah, we can, oh, yeah, I can hear you. I was typing some notes um, and trying to, and thinking about, uh, yeah, I think that's such a great discussion and something um, that certainly in EI we we should always be thinking about how we're, you know, working with the family. I'm wondering, do you have a specific example that you're thinking of about sometimes yeah. it's easier to kind of go through maybe, like, a, a case example or a specific question about, like, a,
2: a yeah. specific
3: topic that you've tried to, to address with a family?
2: Absolutely. So I feel like on EI teams that I've been on, um, it often – calls on me as the OT to bring up um, concerns related to autism or, you know, recommending like a medical diagnostic. Um, So, you know, it it requires a lot of collaboration with team members and um, discussions about whether, you know, we kind of are all feeling on the same page about like whether a medical diagnostic is something that's appropriate to bring up. Um, So recently I had um, a family that I was working with. This was a mom of three kids, um, that were very young under the age of eight. Um, and she was a single parent and it was a, it was a, um, pretty low income family. And mom was just really overwhelmed, um, with her child's needs. And, you know, the team felt that a medical diagnostic would be appropriate because we had concerns regarding autism. Um, but, you know, I had recently gone to this Um, talk about how parents go through stages of grief um, and one of those stages is denial and we had brought up this discussion um, during an IFSC meeting and she you know she was clearly telling us that she wasn't ready to hear this information Um, and so I you know the team and I were just kind of having a discussion afterwards about okay like what you know he's aging out of EI really soon Um, And we really think that this would be beneficial for him to go through a medical diagnostic to help, you know, um, this transition to school, but also the family, you know, this mom wasn't ready to hear that. Um, Mm. So that was kind of like the case that came up most recently. Um, And I'm just kind of wondering if anybody has had similar experiences before.
1: You know, usually, okay, I work at the North Shore. Usually they actually, I hate to say this, on the North Shore, they kind of, like, throw it at the parent when they when anyone suspects and they don't really, the parent, I've never, I'm not there for the initial vowel. so I don't know, but I get the sense that someone, like, someone basically puts it out to the IEP and is not ever, I don't get the sense it's coming from the parent ever.
3: Mm. Oh, interesting. But, oh, that but,
1: is interesting. You- and my whole issue, it is sometimes okay. Some of the kids and up in the North Shore, they're very easy to put autism type, some type, a spectrum label, even though the kid may may or not. I've had a couple of kids who are high, and it was questionable whether they were really on the spectrum, but they throw out this diagnosis because then insurance companies because in the state of Illinois, the insurance companies are required to pay for therapy. Mm-hmm. But you get the same time, the same quandary of what about the parents who is um, on Medicaid or all kids and, how should I put this, it's hard to find any providers that do ABA. You know, so you get both sides of this whole world. You know, you you get the ones that probably overkill on ABA and then you get the ones who You know, I'm sorry, but, you know, where are you going to find a a provider to take Medicaid for your kid? I mean, they do 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 ABA at school districts, some more than others.
2: Yeah, and I think that's such a complicating factor, definitely, like the type of insurance that the family has. And I've also seen, um, Ashley, I think you might have been the one that had um, mentioned this at some point, but, you know, minorities tend to get these diagnoses later in life, and so their access to services early in life is, you know, um, not there, and so I feel like this, like these are discussions that we should be having earlier on. Um, you know, especially if it's something that is very apparent. Um, so yeah, these are all just like really complicating factors that you know lend to the discussion. Um, you know how we're having them and when we're having those discussions.
4: None. Yeah. Is a, oh. Oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say this uh, is a great question a great question and it's one um i haven't worked in ei in a while but i have a story very similar to the one that you you shared where um the team suspected autism for this little guy for a a long time but parents were just not ready to hear it and um they would were not interested um or they were just resistant to even discussing any concerns that the team had and they went through um Almost every hearing test and and other others they wanted to rule out everything else before they would even talk about autism, and and, which is their right and they did. But then the little guy ended up getting an autism diagnosis. I mean, like the months before he aged out of EI, and the parents then were just like deer in headlights and struggling because they. They knew nothing at that point really about autism and what was available to the child. So it was really kind of a sad story because um, the team couldn't get the parents on board with Mm
1: -hmm. a medical
4: diagnostic or even discussing what the team's concerns were. But then on the other hand, I've also worked with a family where um, the family was frustrated (laughs) that the team was not being more direct. And so the mom said oh, no.
2: later on, this is
4: a family that I worked with, with an older child the mom was discussing with me about her experience in EI, and she says, I wish someone in EI would have, would have just said the word autism sooner because uh-huh. I was so um, uncertain and afraid of uh, wondering what could be going on. I wish someone, that they wouldn't have been afraid to say, Um, you know, we think it could be autism or we think we should do a diagnostic for autism. So I think it really depends on establishing a good relationship with the family and, and like, figuring where they're at and what stage of that acceptance they're at um, with their child needing therapy in the first place and then about possible diagnoses and the issues the child's facing. Um, I think as OTs, we're well-equipped to kind of form that strong relationship with parents and that good rapport. Um, using therapeutic use of self and other strategies, but it is a challenge.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think, like, another really great strategy is just, like, that collaboration with the team um, and thinking about, like, deciding who on the team, like you said, has the best rapport with the family, like who's been working with the family the longest, you know, who has the best relationship with that parent, and really figuring out who is going to be the best person to bring it up um, to the family and having that discussion beforehand so that everybody is prepared, you know, and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and it's happening in the best possible way. Yeah. And
3: I think, you know, and that's so important talking to the team so that maybe it is one provider that brings it up, but that the family might hear it from multiple providers so they don't yep. start to think that only one person thinks that or, you know, yeah. that missing uh. Because, you know, Teresa, I've definitely had families uh, had those similar experiences where, you know, families will say, I don't want to find out six months from now something that I should have known before. And I always Mm -hmm. think about that. And that in early intervention families, the child and the family has a right to this medical diagnostic, which is part of the services that can be provided. And that it's our role to provide that information. And if the family is not ready if they are sort of in that grief stage or denial stage or whatever, or they're just, they're just not there yet, we can't do anything about that. That's certainly their, you know, that's their perspective, and that has to be okay. But, but it is our role to make sure that we provide that information. Because mm-hmm. if we, you know, it, it, it's not okay for us as a, as a professional to not bring it up because we are scared of the family's response or we're not sure about it. If we do feel that, and, and that's perfectly mm-hmm. fair and, and and absolutely it's it's not an easy discussion to have, but that's where I Nummy, mean, as you said, we use our team and talk to them and do other people yeah. see the same things we're seeing, or talk to a mentor, or you know, you, you people that you know through this community of practice or some some way to to you know figure out how do I initiate that discussion, how do I build my own self efficacy to have that discussion because it is so important and it, and it's not fair to the family if we wait because of some of the way that we're feeling
2: yeah or that
3: that we're worried or or scared about the response of the family it's it's certainly part of our responsibility to let them know the the information and that that they have that they have a right to have this diagnostic or they have or to just have a discussion with their pediatrician but we we should share our concerns and we have them
2: yeah Mm -hmm. and I really liked what you said about like letting the family know that like we you know like the team has like we've talked about this and everybody feels like the parents know that everybody's on the same page. And so something that I do often is like, if I'm having this discussion with a parent or being the first one to bring it up, I'll try to do it close to like an IFSP meeting that's coming up so that we can follow up with a family as a team and talk about it again at like a meeting mm-hmm. or set up a meeting so that it, so that the family feels like everybody's on the same page, you know, we're here to answer your questions or, you know, like if you, you know, if you feel like you need more information or need more support around this, like, we are all here to support you and, you know, we are a team.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Ashley,
4: you bring up good points, and I think that maybe a strategy might be to to use um, explaining the, their right to the medical diagnostic while the child is still in EI um, before yeah. they and three as a way to kind of, like, broach that conversation and not necessarily yeah. – you're not always – I don't always feel you, – you may not be able to say, like, I think your child has autism, and that may not be – that's not necessarily our place to diagnose a child, but to make sure – to broach it by saying, you know, you have uh-huh. access to this to get more information about what the child – or what's going on with your child. And if yeah. um, we think autism might be a concern, then then there, you can pursue a medical diagnostic for, for that or for other other conditions that might be – affecting your child and just to make sure they understand that they have that right. um, Even if they're not ready to talk about what the end result might be.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, definitely.
2: Um, I, so I know Teresa, you mentioned like the therapeutic use of self, and I think that's a great um, just mindset to have when you're, when you're having these discussions with families. Are there any other like resources that you think uh, providers could, you know, look up or, Um, think about when they're having these discussions? Like, has anybody um, come across any resources or any other strategies? Anything they learned in school or? (laughs) Um, I guess I'm wondering if any of you have ever used like a screening as a way to help a parent kind of see from your perspective too, like something like the MCHAT. When you, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, go through that many things with a parent, they're like, oh, these are what autism means? Like a parent might have a totally different understanding in their head of what autism is. Um, and yeah. put that paper in front of that, if that's ever been helpful. Uh-huh. I've never done that before, but I think that's a, a, a really great idea.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point to think about that we have this, I mean, the MCAT is a free tool. You can download it, download the tool and the, the, uh, the scoring from, uh, you know, online. Um, you know, it is important to, to think about, you know, that uh, the age range for the MCAT and then also you know, Wait, the for sort of a false positive. But, oh, yeah, go ahead.
1: What's the name of that tool?
3: It's called the MCAT. Uh, it's M and then CAT, C-H-A-T. So it's okay. a... Screening tool for um, for toddlers uh, and yet in young preschoolers um, to and and you go. It's just a checklist that you go through with the family. So either the family can fill it out or you can walk through it with them. Some pediatricians will use it when they're doing mm-hmm. like the stages. They might throw the MCAT in there as well if the pediatrician is concerned about autism. Um, so it's for um, kids 16 to 30 months of age okay. is what it's been developed for. But it, you know, I found that it, it, um, it does offer an opportunity to have a discussion. I mean, before I bring that out, I would absolutely like say the word, you know, autism is in the title. And so <laughs> you, yeah. you don't want to bring it out to the family and they see modified checklist for autism and toddlers and they go, wait, what? Um, so you want to, you know, talk about that. This is what it's for, but it, you know, it, it might help start a discussion and it basically gives you like a screening score that are they high risk and they should have an immediate referral or kind of a middle ground and, and you might need to do some more testing or have more discussion to figure out a next step. Um, yeah. But I found that it helps the family to kind of think about, as somebody mentioned, I'm not sure who said it, that um, families have can have very different perceptions of what autism means. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they know another child that has autism and that's the only thing that they've ever experienced. So I think the MCAT's great to kind of think about all the different aspects or, or a variety of different aspects that might be part of autism or might be part of just who this kid is. Um, and, and to help just kind of start that, that discussion with a family. So yeah. that's a great idea to think about using a screening tool. And we certainly, you know, as OTs, we can certainly use that tool as can other Mm -hmm. other disciplines um i was
2: recently like re-exposed to dr moses um who is a psychologist i believe and he like talks about how parents that have children with disabilities go through like stages of grief and like re-looking at that information i felt like gave me a really different perspective like thinking about like how parents are like coping the loss of a child that they were hoping to have and that they go through these stages and their response to information at different stages is going to be different. And I think like that's been something I've been thinking a lot about too, as I'm having these discussions with parents, like, okay, like where are they kind of in their process of understanding their child and how is it affecting their ability to like take in information, like whether it's like, you know, a home program that I'm doing or like, me talking about a diagnosis. Like, how are they able to accept this information based on where they're kind of are in their process? And I feel like that's been really helpful for me to like look into as well. Are you guys familiar with Dr. Moses?
1: Yeah, I've heard him speak years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, uh, this is Ashley, I, I, I'm i familiar too. That's such a great point. Um, now I mean, to think about those you know the stages of grief and and just where families are in the process, I think that's a really important point did you when you kind of were looking at um some of the work did you um i'm I'm wondering if there's ever been a connection with o t specifically or or infant mental health or anything like that?
2: So we, I recently had at my workplace, we had um, two parent liaisons give a presentation on Dr. Moses and I, like I had heard about him and I had like read into some of his stuff like I think when I had first like started working. Um, So I don't think that like, and then I went back and did some some own research. I didn't see any specific links to OT, but I thought it was particularly relevant for like the EI population because it is so close to like when their child is born and we're kind of coming in and they are still going through these stages of grief. But, um, yeah, I don't, I didn't see anything specific, like in terms of like, you know, it's relation to OT. Um, Mm -hmm. but like you said, mental health piece is like so huge as well. You know, like that's another kind of factor to think about too. Like what is a parent's mental health? um, Mhm. But yeah. Does anybody have like any like positive um, experiences that they've had that they would like to share? With discussing
3: a medical diagnostic, you mean?
2: Yeah. Or, well,
4: like, this is not related to that exact topic, Nami, but I will just say, it's been a while since I've done early intervention, but my first little guy that I saw in EI, I saw him when he was nine months old and um, worked with him until he was three. And then um, I actually, um, he helped, he and his mom helped with some case, a case study um, on him for one of the classes I taught. And I just got an email from them, um, you know, this week that was just saying how well he's doing and then, like, how much she appreciated the relationship that we had when I was um, working with them in EI. The mom worked and all the other EI providers came during the day when the little guy was with grandma. So, I was the only provider that came with and worked directly with mom. So, she and I had a pretty strong relationship. So, we didn't, weren't dealing with medical diagnostic issues, but I think it just, it's indicative of how powerful that relationship with between an OT and a parent can be, and because we yeah. deal with so many issues in EI um, that are so powerful for parents, I think OTs are, like you said in the beginning, really well poised to be the team member that that can have some of these um, communications with parents um, that might be difficult, um, because um, we have skills in, in, in collaborating with parents, and, and, and using therapeutic use of self to develop rapport and then also because many of the priorities of of OT are really, um, really powerful um, for parents um, and, and their relationship with their child.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think like, this is a little bit on a tangent, but I think like another like really complicated topic that we're bringing up in EI is just like the topic of like sensory processing, you know, like, parents have you know often have never heard of this t- term and it's mm-hmm. such a complex topic to dive into and to introduce to a family um, and so that's been you know kind of just like figuring out like how do you introduce and through processing like how do you help a family understand their child's needs in a way that is easy for them to grasp um but then also kind of incorporate some of those strategies into their into their routine um So that's definitely been, like, you know, a difficult discussion, a topic that has come up often for me as well. Are there any other discussions that, um, you know, as OTs that you've had with families that kind of fall into this area of difficult conversation?
3: I think sometimes uh, just the transition process can, can bring about a lot of anxiety for families. Uh, also excitement, but often as, as several people have mentioned, you know, in EI we are often the first sort of therapy provider or professional healthcare provider beyond like a nurse or doctor that is engaging with the family. And we do become very close to these families and they become close to us. and. We develop these really strong relationships and so families can have um, a lot of, you know, can have anxiety around that transition. And and so having that that discussion and what are the next steps and, you know, I think sometimes that is also complicated by the system level kinds of variables in that we don't always know as EI providers, you know, we know what the process should look like. Uh, and legally what that should look like, but it doesn't always happen, you know, that smoothly Uh, in terms of the timeline. We also can't predict for sure whether or not that child will receive early childhood special ed services or what that will look like. And so, you know, it can be, I think it can bring up anxiety for us as well because we know this child very well and, and might have thoughts or ideas around what might be best for that child in the next environment. Um, but we don't have control over that as the EI providers, and, and nor necessarily should we, right? We can be part of that discussion, but the, the receiving team is, is who knows they're studying the best and uh, would, you know, know what this child would, would qualify for. But I think that ambiguity with school-based services sometimes can be tricky because EI, we have very specific eligibility requirements and families get used to the 30% delay or they get used to hearing certain terminology about how their child has been eligible <laughs> And then yeah. it's, it's very different in the school where the team might just say, well, he doesn't qualify, but they don't, you know, they don't have that percent delay that they use. And so families can feel confused about that. So I, I think that can sometimes be a difficult discussion on both, you know, for, for the team and, and the family in figuring out that that transition process. Um, I don't know if others have had similar things or, or strategies that you've used. uh or what people think about that as well.
2: I was going to say, I totally agree that that has, you know, often led to some really difficult discussions as well when parents um, are frustrated, um, like type of classroom placement, um, and they get so used to having these therapists that come into their home that they, um, you know, can, about the is off of, um, you know, that, you know, are part of this, like, EI process for them, and then to feel so just kind of connected when they're part of the school process. And so I mm-hmm. think, like, just helping parents build some advocacy skills um, and helping them understand that they do play a role in, in their child services at school and, you know, that they can't um, through the school system, too. Um, you know, kind of becomes part of that discussion too. But yeah, I think that those transitions are so, are definitely so difficult for everybody involved. Even as mm-hmm. as an, a provider, I can sometimes get frustrated too when, um, you know, things um, on the receiving end don't go as, go the way that, you know, I would have liked as well. But like you said, you know, the school, you know, this, what qualifies for school services so different
1: than what our understanding is of EI.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if this is the case in other parts of the state, but, you know, I've worked in the Western suburbs, worked in the city of Chicago, you know, going into CPS, and um, every school district is so different, it yeah. seems like, you know, in how they, how they determine who, who gets EC services and what that looks like. And I think you know um, that can be tricky for families when maybe they're talking to to other families. Uh, but for sure, for us as EI providers, because we work across, and for the most part, we work across several different school districts. or so many people might do that, and so it, it makes it much much harder to predict what might even happen, or to help fam- help support families in yeah. in understanding the process when the systemic level kinds of uh, variables are, are impacting that so much. Yeah.
2: Um, Does anybody else have thoughts or questions? Those were kind of just some of the questions that I had in mind um, on this topic. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Yeah, I know uh, before we um, hit the record button, we were just having some informal discussion. Um, yeah. But a topic was brought up about um, the the role of the developmental therapist and oh. scope of practice issues with OT, and I think that's such an important such an important topic and something that you know we may we may need to have a, a follow up call about like what, how are how are OT practitioners advocating for our role? What kinds of experiences are people having across the state? Because it sounds like you know, it, it looks different in the northern suburbs versus in the city of Chicago versus in western suburbs. More than likely that, you know, downstate, it looks different depending on whether OT practitioners are even available. So is, you know, when is OT being recommended? How is that decision being made? Um, you know, I think uh, thinking about what this group might be able to do to address some of these issues that have been brought up, you know, you um, is there a discussion we could have at ILOCA conference, or is there um, an advocacy, something that we need to do to, to think about how we might educate others on our role? Because um, there are, there are national-level resources, but, you know, I think Illinois, there are some specific things that happen in Illinois that we might think about how could we as a community address some of these, these things being brought up. Um, sure. Any other Actually. things about the D.C. role? Yeah, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say, so I, like, have heard a little bit about this topic, but could you provide a little bit more explanation about what some of the concerns are specifically related to that?
1: I don't understand what you're asking. Oh,
3: no. So so I know one of the things that – that i've heard is you know that ot is seen just as fine motor and sensory and and we know you know as ot's we know that we are looking at occupations and we can address play and we can certainly address self-care and adls and that adaptive domain but sometimes we get pushed into the fine motor and sensory box and then i've also heard you know with um like then if we aren't advocating for our role in those areas like play and self-care that DTs sometimes are are taking that on. And, um, and, and, you know, talking about it as if they are the experts in those areas and certainly they can contribute, but absolutely play is the primary occupation of children. As OTs, we look at participation in self-care activities, which are those activities of daily living. So we need to, I think we need to educate ourselves and, and advocate, that we can can address more than just fine motor and sensory and, and certainly that we as OTs are looking from that occupational lens and that we're looking at occupations and co occupations not just a fine motor skill. So that, yeah. that would be one of the, the area, the one of the okay. um, concepts that I've heard. In,
2: yeah, I was concept. just wondering if there were like specific like developmental domains that are kind of being, um, you know, debated on.
1: Well, I'm from the Ts I run into, think they do. They have they know cognitive skills more than we do. They are social emotional more than OTs. Basically, their are is They know everything except for sensory and fine motor. Though they also think they know all that also. hmm And they, the, I mean, they actually even well, the ones in the North Shore actually cross the line into. Species domain frequently. I see that all the time. They don't even touch PTs very much.
3: Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I definitely heard, um, I mean, I think this is a big issue within EI and various states, and um, particularly maybe in, in Illinois we're seeing this because we still sort of operate from this interdisciplinary teaming where many, Families, depending on access and availability to the services, um, many families receive, you know, can receive four or five different services, different therapies. Uh, and then, you know, how do we, how do we work as an interprofessional team while also, you know, staying within our own scope of practice and, um, you know, I've definitely heard, you know, crossover kinds of thing, crossover issues with DT, with social work also taking on some of that sensory piece. And, um, you know, I think we do have to, we have to educate and advocate about who we are, what our distinct value is as OTs, but, and, and that we, we have this, you know, we, we do, you know, and not to let fine motor and sensory go either, I think is important mm-hmm. that we advocate for occupation and co-occupation and that we're looking at, that we do have expertise in fine motor skill development. We do have expertise in sensory integration. But how we use that to you know help support a child in participating in everyday activities and routines uh, is important too mhm mm-hmm.
4: I just wanted to add uh, on our i had a we had a national work group call with, with Sandy Shefkin from AOTA yesterday, and this she actually brought this issue up um Um, as it's something that I think is on AOTA's radar. Um, Again, like you said, Ashley, I think there's probably some specific things to Illinois that, um, like, it would be great for EI therapists, OTs to network in Illinois about what are the specific needs in Illinois based on the, the, the provider model in Illinois and the issues being faced in Illinois. But it also might be worthwhile to have a group of people you know, kind of collect what the what are the specific issues in Illinois and then share that with um, Sandy at AOTA because then AOTA has policy people who can um, – that are thinking about this issue. I don't know what they're doing or what's possible at all. I just know that she brought it up and was asking people to share issues specifically related to encroachment um, on mm-hmm. our practice areas by other professionals. hmm And and older, and it's not just DT. I mean, I, I'm not working in EI anymore currently, but um, the BCBA, the the behavior analysts, are where um, I feel this the most now. I've had probably at least five families I've worked with in the last. Two years tell me that their behavior consultants have told them they'll just do all the OT stuff so that uh, they don't need an OT to work with the child. Exactly. So they uh-huh.
1: say that because they do dressing and do everything else.
4: Yeah, so they'll tell families, like, well, we can work on everything an OT would work on, which they, they use this behavioral approach to address some of those things. Yes, I've observed that. I'm not, I don't think I'm the only person that can help a child eat or the only person that can help a child. Play with you know um, using fine motor skills, but um, there may be a variety of. As an OT, I might approach it from a different way than a behavioral approach, and and that it might benefit the child to have an alternate approach. And so that's it's that's one area for 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 somebody to say I'll do what the OT does is a major um, problem uh-huh. because yeah. they should not be representing themselves as capable of doing what the OTs do because that violates our practice act. They can't do some of the things that we say are are unique to OT. Um, So I think it is DT. I think social work, there's some overlap. There can be overlap with PT sometimes, um, but I think maybe DT and behavior are the two I see most commonly, um, kind of um, firmly pushing um, our direction um, and, and maybe becoming problematic.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know we we just have a few minutes left, but I I'm wondering if if there are any ideas now on the call about like what what would be a good next step, I guess that maybe this community could take to address some of these issues um you know, cuz it, it sounds like not even this NEI, but you know, even in school, you know, with the ABA kind of impacting and possible encroachment, and, and across various practice settings, and I've definitely heard these stories over and over for many years. So it's it's something that we need to to figure out a way to to educate others, educate ourselves, advocate for our role. Any ideas on what that might look like, or what what we could do to move forward? What
1: legally? Yes, they're encroaching on our practice, which is licensed, and they're not licensed. So what can you do about it? Like legally? Law. I mean, I, know I mean, if we're licensed and our license says we can do this, 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 and this in our practice, and they're cu- and they're encroaching on our practice, and they're not licensed, they're not re- they don't take they don't pay for the uh, for a license or anything, so they do whatever they they please. It's not like they could go to you know the registration board and say. They're doing is wrong and
3: pull their
1: license because mm-hmm. they're not licensed,
3: right? Developmental well, I,
4: therapists are not licensed
3: in Illinois, right? Yeah.
4: Well, I think that's why maybe um, um, I, I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, at a, like a, at an individual level or, or even at a state level. But I think that might be why um, it, Sandy asked on our call for input on that because um, the policy people that AOTA has, I don't want to promise anything. I don't know what it, ex- it is exactly what they do. But I think that the message is getting um, shared that this is a big issue and then um, they may be investigating what could be done about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I really like the idea of just like collecting you know, what the concerns and experiences have been and just getting a better understanding of, like, is this across states, you know, is this, like, an Illinois issue? And then, like, you know, AOT kind of having information across the board to kind of figure out, like, what is the extent of the issue and where Mm -hmm. do we take it from there?
4: We are, I will say, one of the few states um, that have a, a network of um, school and EI based therapists. Um, some more states are starting to develop communities like we have, but I think it would be a good use of this community just to collect stories um, and then be able to just pass them along in, in one, have someone compile something, some master list or a summary, and then be able to pass that on to um, wherever um, yeah. To, to to AOTA, if that if that's something that would be helpful for them, but then also once the, the like a collective narrative is gathered, then maybe the community could decide what the next steps are at the state level. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that is. <laughs> but.
3: Yeah, and I will add. I know some of the work I'm doing with AOTA. They mm-hmm. are co- we are trying to collect uh, pediatric positive stories because we want mm-hmm. positive stories as well and and especially like around play trying to kind of advocate for our role in play and how we view play as an occupation and how that leads to development of skills and behaviors and, and responses and, and things like that um so you know there are some links on aota and i can put those in the call notes um that that they've been soliciting stories um, for this same purpose for sort of to build a collection so that we can use them for advocacy at the national level, at the state level, however best, at a local level, you know, however best they might be able to do. Uh, but I think it's a great thought to think about also um, collecting concerns. And maybe like a maybe a, another survey is needed even within our COP to see um, what you know what are these, you know, because we have a handful of people on the call now and we've brought up several different issues within EI. So there are probably others, or other people may have additional thoughts to add to the things we discussed today. Uh, and certainly, people that listen to the call can can let us know those. Uh, but I'm wondering if the next step might be like a survey, where we could collect concerns as well as maybe positive stories as a first step.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. Well, and thanks community. for mentioning
3: the the positive stories too, Ashley,
4: because yes. I think um, that is a good. It will be a good advocacy tool to show how just like that collection of stories about play or, or, and and how OT does work on play and how we value it so much, that's a strong statement, even though it's coming from that more positive direction. So,
1: mm-hmm. um,
3: Is there anybody on the call now that would be interested in helping with developing a survey or, or a way to collect those stories and concerns? Everybody jump in at once, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, if, <laughs> and I know we have a small
3: group, but, um, you know, it's something we can think about. Or if anybody listening after tonight's recording, uh, you know, if, if you have an interest in, in helping with this, I think this could be a good next action step for this community to take. Because um, These calls are great. and We want to have these discussions, but it, it's also great to, to lead to some action and, and what can we do as a, as a next step to address some of the things that are brought up. Um, so we're, we're right at the end of, of time, and so I want to uh, just open it up if there's any last thoughts or comments or questions. Okay, well, we certainly want to thank uh, Namisha for leading our call and bringing up some really good uh, thoughts and discussion questions about early intervention practice. And the call notes will be posted after this call as well as the recording. So anybody listening after, see something in the notes that you have questions about or that that, um, intrigues you and that you're interested in, please let us know. Uh, And then we can, you know, think about how we might work together to develop a survey or a way to collect some concerns and stories of what's happening out in practice in EI, but as well as in the schools and and other practice settings, um, because some of these issues would cross over. um, so, thanks for joining us, everybody. We look forward to um, our next call. Uh, we'll let you know when that will be, and we hope everybody's having a good wrap up of the school year and, and heading into summer.
1: <laughs> so Thank we'll, you. We'll,
3: yeah, we'll say good, good night for tonight, uh, and thanks again, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.
1: plus.